Hey everybody, welcome back to the Classics Podcast, Reclamation, an intervention in the current conversation around theater history, where we recenter and uplift the Black writers and storytellers of the American theater, both the celebrated and the forgotten. I'm Dominique, your host for this episode, number three in our series exploring the life, work, and legacy of Alice Childress. Today, we're going to be talking to author and scholar Mary Helen Washington, who has spent years studying and writing about the history of Black leftist organizing in America, as well as on the political affiliations of Alice Childress. We are so excited to have Mary with us today. Uh, so the first question is, in the intro to your book, The Other Blacklist, it proposes a counter-narrative that begins with the Black left history that is missing in the Norton Anthology of African-American Literature. What is the general story we're told about, about Black literature and arts in the 1950s, and what is left out? You know, that's a great place to start, because that's almost the place that I started with this book, because the Norton, of course, is you know, part of my library, my teaching. And it occurred to me after, I guess, several years that they had started every section by putting the literature in a historical and political and cultural context. So the first one, I think, was slavery and freedom. And I think the second one might be reconstruction. And the third one was Harlem Renaissance, the fourth one was uh, the Black Arts Movement. And so from beginning to the end, you know, they could see how politics was important for understanding African-American literary production. But then when they got to the 1940s, that period from 1940 to 1960, all of a sudden they had amnesia. And so it was like, where's the Cold War? This is the Cold War. This is the period in which, you know, civil rights organizations and black radicalism is all being um, treated as subversive, undermined. So I looked through the index to see what 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 names uh, were missing in that period. Paul Robinson was not in the index. The word Cold War, the term Cold War was not in there. The um, arrest of W.E.B. Du Bois and his indictment for actually serving on, you know, trying to uh, get a peace petition signed. Claudia Jones, Communist Party, none of those terms was in this book. And this book is, you know, so well constructed. And, you know, there's such deep research on all of these other periods. But there was just like a blank period when they got to the 1940s, 50s, um, you know, the period that I, I call, you know, the Cold War period. And, I, you know, I realized that part of it, it was that it is also a period in which the, the, the State Department, the powers that be, actually didn't want us to remember that period. They did not want us to remember McCarthyism and the House Un-American Activities Committee and the Attorney General Subversive List. Oh, again, these are terms you will not find in the index to the Norton, but it, it was also because that period was a period of such repression. And so the repression was there in ways that made it, in some cases, very difficult to access that, that period. So now we have books like, you know, my, uh, The Other Blacklist, another term that's not in the index, we have um, 
books like the, the book on the FBI by William Maxwell. We have all of these books, um, Hammer and Hole by uh, uh, Robin Kelly. We've got Sojourning uh, for Freedom by McDuffie. We've got Higashiga's book. I mean, you know, there's now been a proliferation of literature on that period. So for you who are of a different generation from me, you may have come of age expecting that the, all of this material would be available, but it wasn't available in the 1950s. It was very, very, very much suppressed. Even these FBI files that we now have online, you couldn't have had access to the FBI files in the 50s and 60s. I don't care how many freedom of information requests you made. But I think the other reason for that is that the Norton is, is, a, is a fairly conservative document. And so a lot of these people who are on the fringes, who are on the, or I shouldn't even say fringes, who are just on the left, you know, that was not being covered by, you know, this anthology that wanted to be a mainstream anthology. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of of sense. And I think like we talk about the Cold War and we, we talk about the House on American Committee, but we don't talk about like the depths in which specifically Black um, organizers and artists are really having to like sidestep and evade. Like you don't talk about Robeson's, Robeson's massive case in school, right? Um, and so the sort of repression of of Black leftists, not just politics, but I think identity and, and desire still feels so clear to me today um, in a way that is like unsurprising, but really unfortunate. The reason I called my book The Other Blacklist was to point to the fact that we expect the Cold War to deal with the repression of certain kinds of, um, of certain people who are in the Communist Party and known communists. What was less known was how much of that repression was targeting Black people, civil rights activists, people who were involved in any kind of critique of colonialism, critique of imperialism, critique of racism and segregation. That was being targeted by the, by the FBI, the CIA, the State Department, the United States government, because those were the most radical groups. Those were the groups that were really uh, uncovering the basis for a lot of the uh, anti-Black repression in this country. And in fact, one of the things um, that I saw in each one of these people that was in the other Blacklist was that it was their Blackness that, that interested the FBI because they recognized that that Blackness was kind of the source of radicalism in this country. And not only was it the source, it was easier to target as subversive a white communist. But what could you say about a black civil rights activist? You couldn't target them for their work as civil rights. So you had to make them into communists. You had to make them into the far left. So I wanted the other black list to in, really insist on the way in which Black people and anti-racist work was at the basis of a lot of McCarthyism and a lot of repression. Yeah, that's great. It reminds me, I don't remember the name of the author, but there's a um, the, the, the sort of saying that um, wherever you find Black people, if you need there to be a red scare, there will be one. Yeah, right. That that is yeah. that's always that that no matter where black people are, even black people who aren't communists, right? The communism is sort of always um 
able mm-hmm. to manifest itself when the state needs it to. Mm-hmm. And actually, the majority of people in my book were not actually card-carrying communists. They might have been associated with a group that had been determined to be subversive by the attorney general. They might have simply been involved in civil rights activity. So you didn't have to actually have, you know, a red mark on your forehead. I mean, there was one (laughs) FBI uh, report on uh, the visual artist Charles White. And what they said in his FBI file was that they found a, a lot of red in his paintings. So they were looking for every possible glint of subversive activity. I was always interested in the 1950s because that's my period. That's the period that that actually had the most impact on on my life. I'm growing up in the 1950s and I, I could see so clearly how anything that Black could be determined to be subversive. And part of that was because of the 1954 Supreme Court decision ending desegregation. Because hand in hand with desegregation was... And and hand in hand with the Brown decision was, how do we make Black people, then Negroes, acceptable to the mainstream? And to become acceptable, I mean, I know you've heard this from your grandparents or your parents, how you dressed, how you talked, you know, your grades in school, all of that was a part of making you the acceptable person for integration. And in fact, when I was a teenager, we used to say we had this little smart retort, you know, when somebody would do something foolish, we say, you ain't ready. And you ain't ready meant you ain't ready for integration. (laughs) I mean, we laughed about it, but you could see how deeply embedded that was in our consciousness. How do you behave in a way that will allow, you know, you to be acceptable to the mainstream? Yeah. My grandmother was born in the the mid thirties, 1930s. And we, we had a conversation, I think last year where she was talking to me about, she'll never say it out loud, but she could say it because it was just us in the room, her own sort of anti-integration sentiments. Right. Mm-hmm. And specifically she remembers, um, when the deseg- when the school desegregation happened mm-hmm. and one of the sort of big feelings that she had of animosity towards it is like, I can't trust these people to teach my kids, mm-hmm. right? Like they they didn't care about my kids before desegregation. They're not going to care about my children the day after. That's impossible. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm always sort of thinking about the things you have to give up in order to do that. Well, if no one is going to teach them in these schools and the thing we need to do is make them respectable, there must yes. be a way, right? If the education system is going to fail, maybe this suit, which we can now look at and say it, it, it doesn't work, right? You can be shot in a suit. Um, but the the sort of trying to do anything you can to um, to work against the thing you know is going to fail you. <laughs> and, and you see, when you take the word integration and you put it up against the term anti-racism, the Supreme Court decision was not about trying to affect anti-racism or uh, to to challenge anti-blackness it was to make this to make democracy work to make at least work on the surface of things and that meant that you could not have you know exported all over the world these stories about lynching and these stories about you know torturing black people in the south and you know those stories were all over the papers in Europe and all over the papers in Russia and all over the papers in every communist country. Whenever there was 
some kind of protest where there was a violent response to black protesters, you know, that became an international story. One of the things that had to be done was to make whatever integration could be managed, could be handled, had to be managed in a way that it was keeping black people within a certain kind of boundary. And, and that's why Alice Childress is so important. Not only because she was completely on the left, whether she was in the Communist Party or not, I don't know. She was definitely close to the party in many different kinds of ways. Lloyd Brown, who was an open communist, said that he thought that she remained outside of the card-carrying communism because she wanted to do what she, you know, to do as she pleased. But he said there was only a technical difference between her and the Communist Party. And I'm saying that again to say, if you look at all of her work, one of the things that she got targeted for was her anti-racism. She saw through all of that. And that is the importance of these black left activists in the, in the 1950s is they cut right through that integration project. And they constantly said, no, it's about your anti-blackness. It's about working for anti-racism. And then the term that got used on the left and only on the left was white supremacy. No one else used that term. White supremacy, if you said that, you would, you, you would be on the, the FBI list for uttering a term like that. Now we throw around a term all the time because we're very deeply indebted to the black activists on the left in the 1950s for all the ways in which we can talk now and all the openly um, uh, anti-racist ways that we can think and, and behave we're indebted to the left for that, the left of the 30s and 40s and 50s. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you you brought her up to, to Alice Childress. Um, the sort of next question I have for you about her is, is could you tell us a little bit about the, the sort of political and arts organizations that she was associated with and some of the ways in which those things influenced her work? You know, when I, when I look back on her life, I see her even in junior high school, she was active as an, uh, she was doing some acting with the Federal Theater Project. The Federal Theater Project, again, it grew out of the New Deal. The leftists that were involved in the New Deal were putting on these productions. And so if you go back to junior high school, you, you could see how early she was a part of that. And I think what that did for her is it made her realize that these left organizations were the places where especially black artists could survive and could thrive. After that, she was involved with the American Negro Theater. I think that was about five years in the 1940s, maybe 41 to 45, something like that. And all of the artists who came out of that period, we all know Ossie Davis, Ruby D, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, uh, Alice Childress, Frederick O'Neill, they were, they were trained in the American Negro Theater, which meant that, again, here's this institutional support from the left that allowed Black artists to do some things that they would not have been able to do, certainly in the mainstream uh, theater at all. If you look at the list of things that, that Alice was involved with, she wrote for Freedom Magazine, which is founded by Paul Robeson, and it was as left-wing as you could possibly be. 
one of the things that it did was it constantly connected racism in the United States with colonialism in places like South Africa. That was that got the paper listed on the attorney general's subversive list. So she's part of Freedom Magazine, and she wrote the Mildred columns for Freedom, which allowed her to say a lot of things about race and about the left. She was in the Harlem Writers Guild. Okay, so just listen to this. I got this from her FBI file. She taught at the communist-influenced Jefferson School of Social Science. So the communists had these Marxist schools. I should say Marxist, not communist. She taught there. She um, spoke at a rally for the blacklisted Hollywood 10. Uh, she walked in the annual communist May Day parade. She was on a theater party to benefit the progressive unions, especially the United Electrical Workers. And again, once you start studying the left, you begin to understand what these progressive unions meant. She was on the committee to restore Paul Robeson's passport. She helped to found this group of black women who fought against lynching called the Sojourners for Truth and Justice. She wrote for masses and mainstream, for the Daily Worker, for Freedom Magazine, she was deeply embedded in the Harlem left and all these different organizations. And it shows you what a versatile person she was. Here she is on one hand, writing plays for the theater. And on the other hand, she's helping to organize unions or helping to support unions. And then on the other hand, she's working at these rallies for people like Claudia Jones and Paul Robeson who are being blacklisted. I mean, she just was truly a woman of the left. And the way they throw around the word left now is not what it meant in the 1950s. Being on the left meant you lose your job, deported, like in the case of Claudia Jones um, or in the case of Alvin Hunton. He served a year in jail for refusing to turn over the names of people who were on um, the organization that he headed, which was an organization to support the uh, activists in South Africa. So think about this an amazing woman who is not in the Norton Anthology. She might be in there now, but when it first came out, this was not a name to be known. She's sort of like a woman for all seasons, a Renaissance woman. I think that there are sort of two strands I maybe want to follow here. And th yeah. the first one you're, you're naming, it's about the sort of community that she builds or that she finds mm -hmm. in all of these um organizations and 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 some of the we found a interview with Martin Duberman for his biography on Paul Robeson and uh -huh. she suggested close involvement with many of the staff of freedom um are there other people that she worked closely with who could be considered her community Alice was an irascible woman she was not easy to get along with in fact, when I was supposed to interview her, I sent one of my graduate students because I thought that she would handle the graduate student with, you know, with more generosity than me. She was difficult. So she wasn't uh, so much a part of community. She was in communities, but I would say she was not close to many people. Mm. Uh, she was in the theater community. And that's that was kind of the community that she felt the most uh deeply involved with. But again, that meant that they came for productions, they came for rehearsals, but it wasn't a group of, of friends. 
Uh, and I, I think that defines her more. She was an activist. She was an activist and an artist. And to the extent that she was connected to groups, it was through one of those two ways. It was either through her civil rights activism or left-wing activism or the theater. Sidney Potier said something about her. Um, in his book, he said he would forever be grateful for the fact that she introduced him to Paul Robeson. Now he doesn't say that she also introduced him to the left and got him involved in the left, but you know it does say she had important connections with people. And do, does it feel to you that sort of um, coming and going makes it easier for one's name to be forgotten? I think you have your finger on something. One of the things that's happening during this period is that people are not telling you what they're doing because right. in many ways, a lot of stuff has to be underground. And so they're not actually advertising that oh, I'm doing this or I'm putting my name on this. They're being very circumspect about their activities. So that meant you have to go to the FBI file to find out some of the things that they did, but they were just the fact that they're in the FBI file means that they were trying to be very careful about it. At one point, I interviewed Herbert Aptecker in California, and that's when he told me that she lent her apartment to him. Communist organizers who were underground could use her apartment. She would go off someplace and let them have it for an afternoon. That's not the kind of thing you, you advertise. I think also... People who were involved in civil rights activism, again, were not writing about that. There's only one article that she writes about her activism, and that's one called For a Negro People's Theater. And she talks about wanting to found this theater and how very radical she wants it to be. She wants it to be anti-colonialist. She wants it to be a kind of international uh, gathering of left-wing voices. Uh, but beyond that, there's there's not a personal essay where she writes about her activities or writes about the people that she knew. It becomes hard and impossible to track sort of a legacy when it's a when it's a thing you can't talk about. I think what I'm trying to name for myself is that the lack of record makes it easy for the state to help you vanish or to make you vanish. Make her vanish, yes. Now, you also have to remember that Childress is also fighting against sexism. And right. in fact, she wrote Florence and she said that she wrote that play because the men in the American Negro theater said that women did not represent the race when it came to racial issues. It was men that represented it. And so she writes this beautiful one act play, which is set in a railroad station and gorgeously organized so that the the segregated uh, uh, station is obvious. The white people are on one side, the black people are on the other side. And she has this woman named Florence who's an actor in New York and her mother and sister want her to come home and take care of her kid. She's struggling with the issues of a black woman wanting to be an artist. So I think it's important to talk about the way in which men took center stage and wrote about themselves and did not write about what women were doing and did not give them credit. I mean, 
look at how what a hard time she had getting wedding band produced. Yeah. You know, she produces it at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and it takes her, I don't know, another 10 years before she gets it done in New York. Yeah. And can could you talk a little bit about the the way that the blacklist affects her career? Well, the first thing is that she couldn't get that book uh, like one of the family published by Mainstream Press. And so she went to Apdecker, who at that time was a top communist, and he got her published with uh, international publishers. And again, if you know your history of the left, you know that's a very Marxist um, uh, publishing company. So they published it. Now, I have talked to communist people, uh, one is a woman named Dorothy Sterling, who told me that in communist circles, everybody knew that book. They passed it around, they, they, they bought it, and they thought it was wonderful. But again, because it was international publishers and, and that was a left-wing company, it wasn't going to get widespread attention. The um, same thing with freedom. I mean, there were people who carried around freedom wrapped in a brown paper covering so that people wouldn't know they had it. So again, there's another way in which it's, it's um, very difficult you know, to create a kind of name for yourself uh, in those circumstances. And then I think also all of Childress's productions are so, to me, they are so black. When she produced Wedding Band, her friend, her good friend, John Killens, said that he felt like it was an attack on black men. And that one of the worst things that could, could be done is to show an interracial relationship between a black woman and a white man. I mean, he was just incensed about that. And yet, when you read that play, even more than when you see it produced, but when you read that play, you realize it's not about her struggle to have an interracial relationship. It's her struggle to get the, to get the understanding of how race impacts everybody in that community. And so that dialogue between Julia and Herman, you know, the interracial couple, she is constantly at him about, no, you can't put racism aside. Racism is here. She says racism is deeply embedded in the whole fabric of this country. So again, there, there's it's not just the left <clears throat> that's stopping her from getting produced and published. It's the left, but it's also her very tough um, blackness. And well, now I want to reread Wedding Band. It's, I just saw it, but it's time to go back to it. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about um, Childress's involvement in the Committee for the Negro in the Arts? As much as I know about it is that she was one of the founding members. It was a Communist Party-sponsored organization. <clears throat> I know that they meant for it to be kind of mainstream because when I saw a picture of the people who were in it, People from the arts were in it. Paul Robeson was in it. Um, I'm pretty sure, I don't know about Hansberry. Um, but but they meant it to support artists. Um, and they tried to keep it separate from um, the Communist Party because it wasn't a communist organization. It had a lot of institutional support from communists, but it was mainly to see what they could do to support artists. So one of the things that they did, 
I'm thinking about the way they um, they produced her play, Go Through the Trees. This is kind of an interesting way those left organizations work together to help black artists. The, the first production was at a left-wing venue called Club Baron. The Civil Rights Congress, another left organization, bought out the house for that evening. Lorraine Hansberry wrote a review for of the play in Freedom, and Lloyd Brown, another communist, wrote a review of the play for Masses and Mainstream. So you see, one of the things that the Committee for the Negro and the Arts was trying to do was to harness all these different um, organizations and different groups together to see if they could support Black art. It didn't last very long because it was on the Attorney General's subversive list in the 1950s and people dispersed. In fact, you know what happened at the Club Baron was the State Department was coming down so hard on the Club Baron in investigating the club, investigating the owner, that the owner finally just closed the, the club because the harassment was so great. So the Committee for the Negro and Arts probably lasted somewhere between three and five years. But I'll tell you, the McCarthyism and the House Un-American Activities Committee were domestic terrorists. I mean, they terrorized the, the left-wing arts community. You saw what they did to the Hollywood 10. People were put out of jobs. In fact, little as is known, Sidney Poitier didn't work for four or five years because he was blacklisted. So, you know, the immense power of the state to come down and first of all, put you on the attorney general's subversive list. And you could be on that subversive list for just having signed a petition uh, for Paul Robeson or against Claudia Jones's deportation, or you were marching in a May Day parade. Um, any of those things could bring you to the attention of the FBI. So the repercussions of your political activity was like nothing we've ever seen. So when I look back on Go Through the Trees, that ends with this South African segment. And it ends with a segment in which they are fighting against colonialism and about to die. And they're in the defiance campaign. And the defiance campaign was 1952, again, you know, centered on the Cold War. And when her critics talked about it, they said, oh, she was just interested in human rights. Well, the South African defiance campaign was orchestrated by the Communist Party in South Africa. And the, the only way you would have even been able to talk about the defiance campaign would have been if you were on the left in the United States. Because that, that was not part of the ordinary uh, discourse in the United States, even among people who were involved in the civil rights movement. That came in the 80s and 90s when we recognized Oh, what they're doing in these other countries is, is imperialism. Um, that was not a term you could throw around. And you know what? I try to ask myself, why is it that somebody like James Baldwin wrote about and disseminated all of, you know, kind of every thought that he ever had? And these people who were contemporaries of him, you know, like Childress, even Hansberry, Paul Marshall, the woman I'm working on right now. Why is it that the things that they were involved in and in, in, in creating um, 
did not get disseminated. Baldwin had essays in every mainstream magazine, but Childress is in masses and mainstream. That was another book that you would walk around covered in brown paper. Well, Baldwin was publishing in Partisan Review. That was mainstream. He was publishing in Harper's. That was mainstream. He was publishing in the New York Times, mainstream. And she's publishing in Masses and Mainstream and The Daily Worker and Freedom Ways. Again, all of these are, you know, left-wing progressive venues and people who came to write, you know, the literary history, the cultural history, it's only been very recently that they would even note these journals and note what people were saying outside of, you know, the larger mainstream uh, magazines. I think about this a lot with like the term abolition and the way that abolition over the past two years, Mm -hmm. three years, has sort of entered, like you can say it in public without getting looked at like you're wearing a tinfoil hat and standing on the side of the street, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think about that that a lot in the chroniclings of history, who gets to be um, mainstream and who gets to be like left to the side because it's like, what are these ideas, right? Like to, to name the United States as an imperialist nation, to name it as a colonial nation, right? To some is going to sound like a, a, a bad conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that those sort of truths get left out because of that is always so frustrating, but interesting to think about maybe as a thought experiment. You know, you might compare it to the way um, right-wing people have now tried to discredit critical race theory. Right. You know, that's, I think, a very uh, clear analogy between um, what was said on the left in the 50s. Right, right, right. That's a great example, actually. Same kind of treatment. It's just that the right wing doesn't have total control over the media the way they did when the Brown uh, versus Board of Education decision was rendered all over the country, except for very, very liberal states. People talked about it as a dangerous precedent. We have one more question for you. We've been talking about a lot of, of children's associations with the left. And, and though she retreated from many of those associations, at least publicly, you discuss in your book the way the, the philosophy of the left, the, the sort of ideology of the left, continues to influence her work throughout her life. Which later work captures that for you? I think the one that captures it the best is the is a little novel. It might even be considered a young adult novel called Those Other People. And the reason is it's set in a it's a school situation in which one teacher is being accused of, if I'm not mistaken, accused of homosexuality. And little by little, people start to ostracize him. And it becomes a kind of House Un-American Activities Committee working to discredit this young man for being gay. And it's it's only when the Black uncle who's involved in some kind of very uh, pro-Black organization comes to the young man's aid that they break this aggressive campaign against him. There's no communist word in there. There's no left-winging. But it's about the way in which you can discredit people for uh, an activity and gather support for it simply through innuendo and ostracizing this person. I guess you could see it very much with the way the right wing is working right now 
uh, with their conspiracy theories. Uh, but that's the novel in which I think the, the workings of the House Un-American Activities Committee was still very much, you know, very deeply a part of her consciousness. And so she she weaves that story into this novel that has very little to do with the left. And again, it's the it's the person involved in black politics that breaks this campaign. And that's the way I think she felt about the left in the, in, in the 1950s during the Cold War, that it was, in, in fact, many people say it was the civil rights movement that broke the back of McCarthyism because mm -hmm. that's the civil rights movement as it really began to grow and to become more prominent, especially with King. It became impossible simply to call them communists or leftists and therefore discredit them. So she's 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 sort of rewriting that story of uh, uh, of the campaign against the left. And that, that book is probably 1979. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Yes, you know, I'm working on this biography of Paul Marshall, and uh, I feel as though Paul Marshall in some ways has a life story very similar to Alice Childress in that she's a very prolific writer. And because she's writing in a way that's not entirely connected to mainstream ideas about Blackness and about women, that she has never been written about and never given the same kind of prominence in African-American literature and literary history as, as other, with Childress and with, uh, and with Paul Marshall. It's important to look at them to see what was it they were writing about that either men or white people or the state didn't want to hear. Thank you so much to Mary Helen Washington for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. Next week, we'll dive into a conversation with the cast and creative team of Wedding Band, directed by our own Oye Tembo. Our sound editor is Aubrey Dubay. The theme song was composed by Alfonso Horn. For more information on Alice Childress, please visit theclassicswithanx.org and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. See you next week.